Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce Murray. Welcome to my podcast, Going Long, where every week we spend time with those in and out of the world of sports, but all who share one thing in common, that, of course, is their love for the world of sports. And this week, it's not part two of a two-part series, but a follow-up to the conversation we had last week, in case you listened, with Bruce Gradkowski, the quarterback that made it into the National Football League and had a long career despite being drafted out of Toledo. Well, this week, we get a chance to chat with his roommate at Toledo. Another small school makes it big story. The 5'9", 185-pound Lance Moore, who not only made it into the National Football League, but played on a Super Bowl team, despite, unlike his roommate, not even being drafted into the National Football League. Not only did Lance not get drafted, when he did make it into the National Football League, he had to spend a year on a practice squad before catching his first pass in 2006, where he played four games for the New Orleans Saints and had one reception. Think about that. A practice squad in 2005, one reception in 2006, and yet stays with it to make an impact on a Super Bowl team just a year later, and then becomes an integral part of the offense, really in the late 2000s, 2008, uh, 2010, et cetera. He was hurt uh, a bit in 2009, but really a remarkable small school story. And how often do you hear two guys from the same small school that happen to live together, that make it into the National Football League a year apart and have impacts in the National Football League, it what made it so interesting. Here now my conversation with the great wide receiver, Lance Moore. Lance, so excited because uh, you and I have known each other for a couple of years now, and I've always loved the story. For some reason, who doesn't love the underdog story? You know, I work with somebody that you know very well. I've done a podcast with Bruce Gradkowski, who went to your alma mater. You guys live together. But there's something about coming through the small school, making it to the National Football League, having a career in the National Football League that just gets everybody excited. Don't you agree? Yeah, I do. And obviously, I, I had to come up the hard way, right? Undrafted, small school, small guy, up and down from the practice squad, cut five times in my career. Um, and it really means something, um, especially when you're done playing. Like wh- while you're playing, you don't really have the time to think about, man, I've, you know, I've achieved so much and I've overcome uh, tremendous odds to get to this point and stay as long as I did. Um, but now looking back, it's like, man, that's pretty cool what I was able to accomplish. And now I have a special place in my heart for guys that come up in the league similarly to how I did. Well, and, and you know, you're 22 and 23 years old when you're doing this. When you're a kid, you have no real perspective. You have no appreciation right. for what it really took to do it. I mean, we know the hard work that goes into it, but I think you'd agree when you're a kid, you're just going through it. It's like college is hard for kids who don't play football or basketball, and they just right. go through it. You get up and you do what you have to do. That's what you wanted to do, so you just got up and did it every day. Well, yeah, I mean, if, if you're living it every single day, you don't have the, the, I guess, the mentality, I guess, to even look at it for what it is. It's It's go, 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 make sure I'm handling my business every single day so that I can, you know, maximize the potential that I have and the opportunity that I have. And yeah, you don't really have time to reflect on it. Um, But as you get older and your life kind of slows down and at least physically, um, you know, you have the opportunity to kind of look back on it and and realize how big of a deal it was. You know, you always talk, you say that you have an appreciation for the guys that come from the small schools. And I I got a lot to get to with you, how you got here. But 
I, I think in one of your early years with the Saints, you played with Marcus Colston who went to Hofstra. And I'm just wondering if you got to the Saints and said, where the hell is Hofstra? Now, I, I, <laughs> I grew up down the block from Hofstra on Long Island, but right. not exactly a football factory. So did you have any idea where he went to college? Well, I actually did because Bruce was his quarterback in the East-West Shrine game. And oh. so, you know, this is obviously they came out the year after I did. So I was going into my second year um, and they're playing in the Shrine game. And Bruce is like, man, we got this guy, Marcus Colston. Like, he's good. Like, he's big. He can run. He's got great hands. And I'm like, oh, OK. You know, I didn't really think too much of it. They're playing in an all-star game. Maybe I'll, you know, be able to see him play in the NFL someday. And sure enough, we draft him in New Orleans. And from day one, you could kind of see physically that this guy was different. I mean, obviously, he's 6'5", 230 pounds, and could run. Um, but then in New Orleans, they, they did something that a lot of teams weren't doing back then, is putting a bigger receiver in the slot. And I'm talking offseason. I'm, I'm not even talking once we got into the regular season. But the way that he was able to move and control his body in the slot and able to create separation, not just with his quicks, but with his size and physicality, I was like, this guy's going to be pretty good. Uh, and obviously, you know, I've got a pretty good eye for talent, but, but the Saints <laughs> did a great job of, of finding um, a, a good spot for him and being able to move him around and not just put him in one spot um, and allow defenses to, to defend him in that way. It just, I knew, I knew from the first couple of times that I saw him that he was going to be good, but I didn't know that he was going to be as good as he ended up being. But, but is it hard when you're on a team and I'm, I'm guessing earlier on in your career, you're fighting for your job every year. There's nothing guaranteed. And then they bring in this guy from Hofstra and they actually drafted him in the seventh round. And you're thinking, well, what does this mean to me? Yeah, I mean, I guess yes and no. I mean, at, at that point, I, I didn't care who was drafted, when they were drafted, how many guys they brought in, because I realized that it was about me. I needed to handle my business. I couldn't worry about who else was around me, what they were doing, when, you know, the money that they were making, because we signed free agents, too. Um, but we had a really good receiver coach in New Orleans, Curtis Johnson. He's actually still there now, associate head coach now. Wait, wait a second. Um, he, he, was, he was actually the head coach of Tulane for a little while. Yes. You remember? He left the Saints, came yep. to Tulane. Didn't, wasn't a great run, and he went back to New Orleans. True. Exactly. I mean, it, it's, it's a great story for a guy that's homegrown, born and raised in New Orleans, and, and had a dream of being a head coach someday. And he got that opportunity at Tulane, which – it's a hard place to win now. I mean, it's 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 not like it's not like there's a lot of championships going through two lanes. So tell me. Uh, but but to his credit, um, you know, had had a I think it was four years that he was there. Yeah. Um, but but you know, obviously realized that there was an opportunity for him to come back to the Saints and help those guys out. And uh, he's been awesome. But he he really it wasn't just me, but all of the guys. He would say, "Don't count numbers. Don't count numbers. Don't don't worry about who's sitting in this room, how many guys, how many seats. Don't look at the depth chart because you have no idea what is going on in those meetings upstairs, what's being spoken about, what are the things that coaches want to see out of guys that may be ahead of you on the depth chart. Um, so I, I really like that from the first time I heard that, I was just like, that's what I needed to hear. Like, that is exactly it, because I was one of those guys, especially my rookie year. Um, you know, I looked around the room like I'm better than this guy. I'm better than this guy. I need to be playing. Why am I not playing? But then when it, when CJ came in, he's like, don't count numbers. Don't worry about what's going on. Don't worry about who we draft. Don't worry about who we sign. Just handle your business because you never really know what's going to end up happening and how that roster is going to break down. You know, I, I find it so interesting because I think the mindset of the professional athlete is different than let, let's say my mindset, because I would be doing just what you said. I'd be sitting in the room, looking around, going, there are five spots. 
There's a let like my son plays hockey. So he goes to tryouts and you see 50 kids and you start doing the math. Well, they're going to take 16. He's pretty good. He's pretty good. You know, yep. what do we have to do? And I, I, I don't think I could survive the stress of looking around the room, seeing 13 guys for five positions and going, just worry about yourself. I'd want to trip guys as they're heading out of the meeting room, <laughs> hoping that they blow out a knee or something like that. Well, you know, it is it is hard. It's, it's not an easy thing to do. And that's really the mentality that you have. But you never really had to look at it this way, you know, before you get to the NFL, because usually guys are all state or all Americans in high school. Usually guys are all conference or all Americans in college. But then when you get to the NFL, I tell people all the time, the NFL is an all star league. There is no league beyond the NFL. So once you get there, everybody's good. And there's a reason why everybody is there when they're there. So. It, it was hard to kind of look at it from that perspective as opposed to the normal perspective of, okay, there's five or six roster spots. There's 13 receivers in this receiver room. Where do I fit in? And even breaking it down as far as position goes. Okay, I'm looking at the depth chart. These are the Xs. These are the Zs. These are the slot guys. Like, oh, man, if I'm a four down here, then how am I going to get up, you know, to a two over here or two over here? Um, it really was something that it took me a good full year to, like, just kind of be like, you know what? Don't worry about it. Go handle my business. Yeah, I mean, you talk about, you know, the guys that are there were all great in high school and et cetera. But I'm also so interested because you're not the first guy that I've talked to. Bruce fell into this category. I asked him about it. I said, if you don't get recruited to Michigan or Ohio State or USC, what makes you think you can play in the NFL? I mean, if, <laughs> if the only school that wanted you was Toledo, that's not the path to the NFL. Now, you and I know that the NFL is littered with small school guys. I mean, one of the best right. players on defense is Khalil Mack went to Buffalo. The New England right. Patriots drafted a kid last year that went to a school that I'd never heard of before last year, right. Lenoir Ryan or whatever it was. And so, you know, I, I know that the mindset is, well, I'm, not, I'm going to ignore that, but tell me about growing up. And y you said you were small. Um, I'm sure at some point that starts catching up with you. So like, when did you know you can play? And then when did the physical things catch up with you that made maybe the bigger people not want you right away? Uh, well, I think it, it, a lot of it started when I was three years old. I mean, I, my dad still to this day owns and runs a dojo. Um, you know, we're talking 40 plus years now. So I was, I was three and I started in the dojo. I started Wait, doing karate. Are you a, kar are you a karate was, guy? I, yeah, I'm a, I got my black belt when I was 10 years old. My dad is a 10th degree black belt. Both of my brothers are black belts. My mom is a black belt. So that has a lot to do with me not necessarily worrying about being the smallest or not being the fastest because I knew that there was other things that I was going to be able to work on that would give me an advantage. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that was kind of the competitiveness is that's when it started. I mean, three years old, I was fighting in karate tournaments every right, weekend. Wait, two, two things. First of all, do you watch the karate kid? Of course. <laughs> Great. I mean, I'm watching every season of Cobra Kai. Are you watching Cobra right. Kai on Great. I have not, but, I have I have not watched Cobra Kai yet though. Oh, you got to watch it. It's like I've it's heard. a guilty pleasure because it's it's so like kitschy from the 80s, like they're right. all now 60 and yet it's that same right. conflict I, I can't get enough. But my sister, believe it or not, got a black belt. And I remember right. to to get the black belt, she had to not only like I think sleep on a rock for like 2 or 3 days, but she also <laughs> had to had to learn how to put her hand through a cinder block. Yeah, which yep. I said, I, I mean, I and she's telling me you got to think through the block and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I've heard comedy routines on it. So what did you have to go through to get your black belt? And what does it take to be a 10th degree black belt? 
Yeah. So 10th degree, if I'll start there. That's a, that's a grandmaster. And you can only be promoted by another grandmaster. And there's only so many that are alive these days. Um, and I think it's time, you know, like time and teaching and all these things, because there is no test for a 10th degree black belt. Whereas for, for me, when I was going for my first degree, there was a long, pretty grueling test that we had to go through, um, you know, physical as far as, you know, the katas or, or the forms go, um, weapons, self-defense things. You had to do some sparring. You had to break bricks. Um, that, that was all part of it. I didn't have to sleep on a rock. I mean, I, I live with my master, so <laughs> I was sleeping in the bed at home. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it, like that was it was it was a natural progression. Right. Like and it had nothing to do with age. It had to do with how well I was progressing, um, you know, from white to yellow, yellow to orange, orange and so on. Um, you know, you tested for every every rank and, and black belt was was no different than that. It just became obviously more taxing physically and mentally. Um, and you did it in front of a, a big group of people because it was, you know, the black belt testing was usually like the big thing for my dad. Like, OK, we've got we've got black belt testing and it's, you know, guys, brown belts, guys and gals, brown belts testing for black belts and then black belts testing for whatever their next rank is. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's what kind of developed my focus, my discipline, um, you know, my uh, ability to not really worry about what's going on around me, just kind of controlling what I can control. Um, and that wasn't something that he said, control what you can control. I think it just naturally became a habit of mine um, growing up in the martial arts. And I was always pretty athletic. And I was, I was always really athletic <laughs> from the time I was I was little. Um, and coincidentally, football was the last sport that I started playing. I mean, I played soccer and t-ball and basketball. And we did gymnastics even. Um, and then eventually I got to middle school, seventh grade, I think I was in. Um, and a neighborhood team was starting. Um, and I just went to one of their like first practices and I came home with like a permission slip and I asked my mom like, hey, can I play football? She's like, yeah, sure. Like, so I started playing football in seventh grade as a quarterback and a safety. Um, and then after that year, from that point on, it was all DB and wide receiver. Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't play football with aspirations of going to the NFL any more than any other kid in the neighborhood, but I was good. Um, from, from the time I started playing, you know, I was one of the better players. Um, and then by the time I got to high school, it was kind of like, okay, I want to play varsity football. But then when I started playing varsity football, I was like, okay, I want to play college football. Um, and I wasn't sure what, you know, what that looked like. I was getting some letters as a junior, but we played in a, in a system where we ran the ball 80% of the time. And, and, you know, I probably only got about 10% of the passes at that point. So um, my senior year is kind of when I exploded on the scene. I was kind of a late bloomer as far as like the numbers go in high school. I was good as a junior. I just didn't get an opportunity to show how good I was. I think I might've had like 30 catches or something as a junior, but then my senior year, I broke like five different state records in receiving. And, you know, we're playing in division one, the biggest division in, in the state of Ohio. Yeah. Um, I had over hundred catches, like 1600 yards and 25 touchdowns and like, you know, I was all stayed and, and, and all these different things, um, but, but still no offers. Um, I had some, you know, some D2 schools that wanted to, to talk um, and a lot of D1 schools sending me, I mean, I had letters from everywhere, just, you know, the, the, the normal questionnaires and things like that, but still no scholarship offers. And it really came down to, am I gonna wanna play at one of the smaller divisions or sw smaller level schools or, 
do I want to maybe see if I can take my chances in basketball? Cause I was still a, a really good basketball player and was getting somewhat recruited in basketball. Um, but at, at the end of the day, I wanted to play football and I grew up in Columbus, Ohio and Columbus, Ohio is synonymous with Ohio state. Um, my whole family went to Ohio state. I had family that played for the Buckeyes. And so I was like, I'm going to go to Ohio state. If I have to walk on, I have to walk on. So that was kind of my path. Um, and then two weeks before I graduated from high school, um, Akron called me on a Tuesday and offered me. Then Eastern Michigan called me the day after and offered me. Then Toledo offered me the day after and offered me. Um, so then I went from, you know, being a preferred walk-on at Ohio State to having three scholarship offers. And within the next, like, 10 days, taking two visits, um, first to Toledo, then to Akron, and committed to Toledo after that because I was like, as much as I love Ohio State and would love to, you know, go there and wear the scarlet and gray, I don't come from money and, you know, I, I would prefer to go somewhere on scholarship. And that's, that's kind of how I ended up at Toledo. And from that point, it was just like, okay, I'm, I'm going to Toledo to, to get an education and to play football. And, you know, we'll see what happens. I, it wasn't then that I had realistic goals of going to the NFL it was out there, right? Like if I go there and I have success, then maybe I could play in the NFL someday. Um, but, you know, I just, I don't know, I got there and, and, you know, put in the work and as a freshman had a very frustrating year because I, I was balling in practice. And then I, we get to the games and I play like three plays and I'm like, like, what am I like? Why am I not redshirting? You know, and then back in those days, you get in the game, your redshirt's gone. So, right. you know, like I didn't play in the first game my freshman year and I, I figured I was good. Like, okay, I'm, they're going to redshirt. This is perfect. Um, but the very next game, somebody goes down, I get thrown in the fire. And then, you know, I end up that, that season with six catches. And this is like, I'm coming from the year before when I had over a hundred and now all of a sudden I've got six and I'm like, man, I just, I literally just wasted a year for 84 yards or whatever it was that I ended up with. Um, but to me, it was back to the drawing board, get back in the lab, keep working. Hopefully the next year will be better. Even though we had basically everybody coming back in our receiver room had a better year, but then my junior year, I led the country. And that was like, in catches I did. Um, that was like the, the first time that I was just kind of like, okay, like I could probably play in the NFL because before then freshman, sophomore year, just, I'm just another guy basically on the team. I wasn't all conference or anything like that. I wasn't getting any acclaim, um, but I was, you know, doing well. Uh, but then my junior year was kind of when I like really burst onto the scene and I, I thought about leaving school early and, and Ooh. I, you know, I, I, I wanted to, I mean, I, looking back, I probably should have, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, you know, we, I, I, I just figured, oh, I led the country this year. I'm going to lead the country next year. It's going to be the exact same. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to have an even better year next year. Um, but I ended up going back and, and I, I didn't have, I didn't lead the country. I didn't have as many catches, but I had more yards and I had more touchdowns and I was, you know, honorable mention all American that year and like all that stuff. Like, and then the fourth quarter of the bowl game, I, I go down, tear my shoulder up, end up having to have surgery, missing all-star games, miss the combine. Um, and it really just like, at that point, it was like, damn, like, is this, is this, is that it? You know, cause I really wasn't sure how significant the shoulder, never had any kind of surgery like that before. Am I going to be able to bounce back? Then I had to think, well, I'm not throwing the football for a living. I mean, I should be fine as long as I do my rehab. Um, and my agent was awesome because he's like, look, I think before this injury, you're, you're potentially a mid-round guy. If you run a fast 40, a 4-3, you could be an earlier round guy. But he said, you have surgery and you can't 
compete in the all-star games. You can't do the meetings with the scouts. You can't compete at the combine. More than likely, we're going to be late to undrafted. And that, that really kind of like, it was humbling, but it really just kind of set my mind in the right spot. Like, okay, I get it. Like, I'm a small guy, small school, and I'm hurt. So if, if I don't get drafted, then so be it. We're going to look at the opportunity that's out there. Hopefully there is one and go from there. So, um, you know, I, I tell people all the time, like, yeah, I was undrafted. And people are like, really? You were undrafted? Like, you played that long and you were undrafted? I'm like, yeah, well, there's a little more to the story than me just not getting drafted. It wasn't that I wasn't good enough. I just, I showed up, showed up at the combine and I was 177 pounds and looked like I had zero muscle because I hadn't lifted a weight in three months. You know what I mean? That was just, <laughs> that was just the, the, the reality of my situation. And I'm not to say that, you know, I, if I was bigger that I would have definitely gotten drafted, but I think if I was able to showcase myself around the other guys, especially the guys from the bigger schools, then I think that my chances of getting drafted would have, would have gone way up, but, um, you know, just another opportunity for me to kind of overcome and persevere. And, um, you know, like I said, the, the hard road looking back now makes it all worth more to me. Um, but when you're in it, you know, I, like I didn't have time to sit at home and cry about not getting drafted like that. It was like, OK, now what? Like, who, who are we going to take an opportunity with? Or, or at that same time, I had the Toronto Argonauts like blowing up my phone like, <laughs> Hey, hey, we, we're ready for you. We've got your rights. We, we want you to come up here. You know, we saw you didn't get drafted. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to kind of take my time and see what's, what's going to shake out with this NFL thing. And um, thankfully, I did that. Yeah. So if, if you didn't play football, had you given any consideration to what you would have been doing? Would you have been a sensei? I mean, you were trained <laughs> in karate. You could have had your yeah, own dojo. You know <laughs> I, th I think that was like my dad's dream. Like, oh, like to be able to hand this, hand this down, this dojo down to my son and he'll carry it on. And now nah, that was, that was never really my dream. You know, like so karate was doing. Was, what was Lance Moore doing if he doesn't get a job in the NFL? Honestly, I, I back in those days, like be, in high school, I wanted to be an architect. Like that was my thing. Then I got to school and I was in business school and, and I was in sales and marketing. And that was kind of like, oh, that, like I kind of like this stuff. And then I ended up switching my major to management. I was like, yeah, I like the managerial side a little bit better. But honestly, I, I think if I wasn't in, it didn't have a career in the NFL, it would have had to have been something with coaching, like something to be involved with the game mm. other than playing in the game, just because I, I love it. You know, I, I love it so much. And, and even now today, it's like I, I coach guys every circuit, basically, that some receivers that are training for the combine or training for their pro days. And like, that is about all of the coaching that I'm interested in doing nowadays. <laughs> like, that's the only amount of time that I'm willing to give back um, as opposed to like going and taking a job in the NFL or college or even high school these days. The amount of time that these guys spend is crazy. And I'm, I, I've got three kids, six and under, and I'm not interested in being gone more than I'm home. So, um, you know, th that, that kind of gives me my football fix um, and then during the season, working in the media still, I mean, it's, it's fun. I worked with um, WDSU, which is the NBC affiliate in New Orleans throughout this season, which basically I did a, a weekly spot. And then when the Saints had primetime games, we did pre pregame shows and postgame shows that were live on television, which was interesting in a COVID year because I'm do I was doing exactly <laughs> this on live television <laughs> in New Orleans. Uh, but it's, but it's fun. It, you know, and it keeps, keeps me still involved with the game. Um, and something else that I'm kind of looking forward to potentially is, is working somewhere in personnel. 
um, because I, the, the talent evaluation thing has always been intriguing for me. And I've, I've always kind of done it, right? As a player, you're evaluating the guys that you're playing against. You're evaluating guys that are similar to you or play the same positions as you. Um, and I'm doing the same exact thing with my guys when I'm training them each and every week. You know, I just, I'm like, okay, we got to get better at these things or this guy would fit well in this specific offense or this type of, uh, uh, you know, style of play. Um, so, you know, just staying involved with the game as much as possible and um, allowing myself to still have the freedom to be home with my family at the same time is, is kind of what I'm, I'm looking for. Yeah. Did, did you ever think like how amazing it is all the opportunities that come your way? because you could catch a football. I mean, you, yeah. you think about if, if you got hurt and you never got a job in the NFL, you're trying to get that job as whatever it is, maybe a coach at a high school level, or you're trying to get that job in marketing or PR, whatever it is. And then once you become an athlete and you achieve something for a certain period of time, it's not going to happen after a year or two. But, and I, I'm going to share with our audience, you know, you and I going to Saints training camp and how your royalty down there but, you know, you, you, you really are. I mean, seriously, it was like red carpet, but that, that's for later. But, I mean, the opportunities that come your way, because for those years you could catch a football, is just, it's got to be somewhat humbling. No, it is. It is. I mean, I, like, and it's not even the football part. It's just, like, the, the way that people react or the way that people treat me because of football. Right. Um, man, it's, like, it's crazy. Um, and I, I'm not one of those guys that's quick to tell everybody, oh, yeah, I'm Super Bowl champion. I played in the NFL. <laughs> I played for these teams. I was in there for 11 years. I made this much money. So, Which, so you're not Gradkowski is what you're saying. There are a lot of guys that are like, yeah. no, no, me and Bruce are different. <laughs> Bruce is the only, you know, you, you know I was a backup quarterback for Robinsburg. <laughs> uh, but no, nah, I mean, that's my guy. That's my guy, man. Like, that's one of my best friends, and, and I uh -huh. always give him a hard time. He gives me a hard time. But it, it is. It is very humbling that it's, it's humbling when people say, like, I'm your biggest fan. Like, I'm like, I, because to me, I just think I'm just a guy. You know, I, I, I was fortunate and blessed to be able to play in the NFL, but I'm just a guy just like anybody else. I can kind of fit in any group or, or setting and just kind of fit in with everybody. Like, I don't think I'm any bigger or better than anybody else. So it is, it is very humbling when you're, you get that amount of respect or adoration. Um, and then, you know, to, to put it in the most simplest terms like you did, to think that that came from me being able to catch a football uh, it's pretty amazing. Does it bother you at all to, to look around and see some of your contemporaries, whether, whether it's guys you played with or guys that play today, that almost have a different approach, that sense of entitlement that because I played, you're supposed to treat me a certain way. You're supposed to acknowledge the greatness. And, you know, there's, you've been around it, Lance. I mean, you know that it goes on. I mean, without naming specific names, I'm saying, did, did it bother you to see the sense of entitlement that came... And look, you know, maybe it's a product of going to Toledo. You know, the guys that played at the highest level at every, at you know, at Ohio State and were treated like royalty their entire lives. You know, I, I can understand that you'd fall into the trap of thinking everything's supposed to be given to you, but it has to bother you from time to time. Well, I, I would say it bothers me more in retirement than it did when I played, um, because I, I look at it from a big picture kind of viewpoint now, like, realizing that at some point it's going to be over like because it's been over for me for five years now um, and how quickly it can be taken away from you I just look at anything that happens or guys that don't have a sense of appreciation and humbleness um, but then again everybody's different you know people have different personalities people have different upbringings people sometimes guys have 
had the red carpet rolled out for them everywhere they've been and had things easy. So it's not going to be any different once they get to the NFL, the, you know, the highest of levels, and then they have some money. What, like, why would it change? It's been that same way forever. Um, ever, and like I said, we're all different. So it doesn't, it, I, like, it doesn't piss me off as much as it makes me sad um, when guys don't kind of feel that same way that I felt. But then again, you know, there's only one me, you know, and, and I can't expect me from other people. How are you with money? Because, you know, sometimes you said you didn't come from money growing up. You know, I, I was actually going to go back and ask you if the college decision was driven by your parents saying we can't afford to send you to Ohio State or you felt <laughs> obligated to take the scholarship. And, and I'd love your answer. To that, but right. I, I say it because I remember talking to Brett Favre about this. You know, when, when he came into money in Green Bay, his parents were school teachers. There was almost some guilt that came with making more money than his parents who had worked so hard their whole lives and yet never really flourished financially. And yet here he was making all this money as a football player. I mean, I'd love to know about the college decision, but I'd also love to know, you know, how it was for you when you came into money. Yeah, well, I think the, the college decision was a, a decision that we kind of all made together, but there was never any pressure um, from my parents saying that, hey, you've got to take this scholarship. Like, we just we just can't afford to, you know, to, to send you to Ohio State. Um, but I wanted to do that for them, if that makes any sense. Like, yeah, they sure. never pressured me. Um, but I wanted to like, okay, if I can take something off of their plate um, and still be able to play ball and get an education and it's free, then why, why would I not do that? And then and, when and I it took, makes you feel good, it makes you feel good. It right? does. It does. Yeah. Because I actually, I, I visited Ohio state um, <laughs> first, like that was my first visit. And I was there with Mike Nugent and Lydell Ross and a couple of other guys that ended up playing for Ohio state. You know, obviously Mike played longer um, in the league, but it's, it, it was, cool to be there but I didn't have the same feeling um as the feeling that I had when I went to Toledo because it was like Ohio State like yeah we want you but you know we've got these yeah. other guys <laughs> whereas Toledo was like we need you like we don't just want you we need you you know and that to me felt good it felt like home it felt like man my opportunity here is potentially going to come sooner than it is at Ohio State and if right. it ever is at Ohio State so that was that was a big part of my decision, obviously wanting to do uh, what, what I felt was right in my heart, but also doing something that's going to help my family out. And, um, you know, that was a part of it. And then when I got to the NFL, um, I've always kind of been a big saver. Um, so any kind of summer jobs or any kind of work that I did growing up, I would like save my money. So when I got to the NFL, it wasn't much of a difference. You know, I, I didn't spend a lot of money. I didn't even have a car. <laughs> my first my first two first two years in the NFL um, after my second season, I finally bought a car, but well, how, how are you getting around by bus, by bike? How are you no, getting around? No, luckily I had a roommate who was also on the team <laughs> that I just rode with him. Actually the first two seasons I had roommates that both had cars and I didn't have to have a car. Um, so having a little bit of money and obviously making a lot more money than, than my parents were making, it allowed me to help them out. Um, so like after my first year, I bought my mom a car. Like that was like, I want to, I want to help her out. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it was, it was, uh, being a saver forever. It, it really wasn't that hard for me. Um, other than being, I feel like I'm such a giver. Um, and when you're out with friends or you're out with family, I always felt obligated to make sure that I took care of everybody. And that, that was kind of problematic for me for, I would say at least my first 
five or six years in the league, you know, just taking care of everybody, making sure everybody's got what they need. Um, and not, not problematic in the sense that I was going broke, but just allowing things to continue to happen over and over and over again. And, and back in those days, I was single and didn't have any children. So it was kind of like, okay, I, I'm making the money. I can do it. Um, but looking back, I wish I would have had a different approach um, to those types of situations and not, not even to save the money, but to save the uh, kind of awkwardness that comes with the problems that resulted from it. You know, I, I want to talk to you about that. First of all, what card did you buy your mom? Uh, I bought her a brand new Acura TL or something. This is back in like 2006. So it was like an 06 Acura TL. I, she had never had anything nice, any, any nice car in her life. So Did she know you were getting it or did you surprise her? Um, kind of had conversations. It wasn't like, oh, she walked outside and there was a big bow on it. You know, we, <laughs> we just, we had conversations and we kind of went and looked at cars together. So she knew, right. but still was, was just as appreciative. So I, I'm wondering if what you were talking about had something to do with, you know, I, I know that for NFL players that, that come from certain upbringings, one of the great challenges for them is to, and not just NFL players, you know, any professional athlete is to, you know, really divest themselves of the guys that are just hanging on for the free ride. I know right. you've been around guys like that. I mean, I, I've read stories about guys who are paying cell phone bills of $100,000 because they're paying for every friend, unlimited minutes, et cetera. And that's why they go broke. People can't imagine how somebody making $100 million goes broke. So did you have people that felt entitled because they grew up with you? They were friends with you? Oh, Lance has now made it big. He's got to take care of me. Were there friends like that? I didn't, no, I didn't. I didn't have. Uh, a, a friendship group on payroll. Um, not at all. I mean, I, I never had any situations like that. And, and like I said, I, I was a giver. So taking care of a dinner or a bar tab, you know, like to me, that wasn't a big deal. Like I love these, these guys or these gals like family. So I'm going to, I'm going to do what I can. I'm, I'm in a more fortunate situation. Um, and honestly, like I don't know that I would change that much. Um, you know, I like I didn't, wasn't paying rent for anybody or cell phone bills or anything like that. I was a little smarter than that. And, and you know, I, I think I was fortunate enough to not have anybody around me that was just thinking that they were going to get this and this and this just based on the fact that I was playing in the NFL. So nobody nobody um, asked. Nobody reached out to you and said, hey, Lance, remember me? No I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, 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 there's always situations where people feel like, you know, because they know you or they're related to you, you know, conveniently related to you that you can help them with X, Y, and Z. Um, I had some issues with some family members um, as far as being like the bailout guy. Um, hey, I, I need it. You know, I need it. I need it. I need it. And for a while I was giving it, I was giving it. And then I just had to be like, I'm not going to be your crutch anymore. You got to figure things out on your own. If there's a one-off and I'm feeling good and I want to give you something, I will. Um, but you know, I, I, I had to look at it. Eventually I started to look at it from the perspective, like every dollar that I'm giving out to somebody who probably could get it on their own is a dollar that I'm taking out of my future family's mouth, uh, my future children's mouths. And, yeah. and it's really easy now. I mean, I've got three kids and a wife and I just blame it all on them, you know? <laughs> so that's, that's easy. But back in those days, it wasn't quite as easy because Obviously, everybody knew I wasn't married. Everybody knew I didn't have children. And it's just like, well, you got it. You know, that I used to hear that like, you got it. Lance got it. Lance got it. Lance got it. And it's like, no, I, like, I don't, I don't got it anymore. Like, I, I'm, I'm good. I love you guys. 
but I'm going to pay my part, maybe a little bit more than my part, but you guys got to take up the rest. And luckily I didn't have a lot of guys that were, were hanger honors like that, that, that took advantage of that. Right. But I, ha I have to imagine too, because I think we all have it at times in our lives that th there's some ego that comes with being able to pick up the bar tab. You know, here you are, you grew up and you know, you didn't have money and now you do. And when you go out with six guys and the bar tabs, $200, you can go, I'll get that or something like that. I mean, there's some ego involved in that, isn't there? Like it, make, it makes you feel like you've yeah. made it to the big time. Yeah, I mean, but that only lasts so long. I know. You're like, okay, I, I'm doing this again, and I'm doing <laughs> this again. And then the bar tab goes from 200 to 2,000, and then 2,000 to 5,000. And you're like, hold on, like, what, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Um, now, I, I, now I say that. Back then, it was just like, okay, we're going to all go out and have a good time, and I'll just throw my card down. That was... <laughs> That was just the natural thing. And, and I don't even know that it was ego as much as I have it and they don't, you know, so may, maybe they'll shoot me a hundred dollars on this $5,000 tab, but maybe they won't, you know, and that was just, that was just what it was. And I, I, you know, look, I don't, I don't look back and I'm pissed off at my friends for being around when I was making a lot of money, you know, right. like that's, I still, you know, love those guys. I still talk to most of those guys. It, it, it wasn't like I felt like they were taking advantage of me at all. I, I was was comfortable and happy to do it, especially in that time. Yeah. So it's okay if I tell Gradkowski he can reach out and ask for fifty bucks. Is that what you're saying? You're you're. Yeah, I, th I think Bruce, I think Bruce is good for it. I think he's <laughs> yeah. good for it. Probably. Do, do you remember the biggest bill you ever picked up? Oh man. Yeah. Let me hear. <laughs> Let me hear. Where where was it? What was the bill? Um, we were in. Um, club live and this is just me by my I've, I've had I've been a part of some bigger bills than this with you know a couple of cards down right but I think the most the most I did by myself was probably like 15 to 20 grand 15 a, to 20 one, grand yeah on a one night oh hardy what what, what yeah. tell, tell me what <laughs> I mean what's on the check is it expensive champagne is it what what everything what's, what's 20 grand Champagne, liquor, waters. I mean, anything that you can buy in a nightclub is, <laughs> is there. And that's that, like I, those type of nights, I look back and I'm like, what was I like? Why, why did I do that? Think, think about but that. Then, then, then again, you, you only live once and you got to enjoy yourself. And But, but you, you look back now and you're a parent, and I'm a parent of three right. kids myself, and you say, 20 grand for a night out, or I could buy my son a car. It's it's one yeah. of the two that could last for the next ten years, and you yeah. and you did it on champagne and bottled water. Sure did. Sure <laughs> it's, did. It's, yeah. it's, it's it's silly. What now? I mean, I hate to ask this. Were you sober when you got the bill? When you get the bill and you're you're prepared mentally to pay for it, you're thinking, "Damn, twenty! What the hell am I?" And and by the way, what's <laughs> what's what's the tip on twenty grand? <laughs> yeah. Um, no idea. Uh, <laughs> on that on that particular night, I was sober enough once that bill came because I was like, "Oh." <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, usually gratuity is included. So like, the bill will come, and you'll you'll make sure that there's gratuity on there. And even sometimes now they'll like circle it so they let you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was that was a, a hell of a <laughs> night, and then a, a hell of a gift to wake up to in the morning when I when I pull the receipt out of my pocket, like, "Oh man, what did I?" <laughs> What am I doing? But, you know, I'll, I'll take one of those nights just to say that I did it, I guess. As yeah. stupid as that sounds. And NFL experience, you got to have one of those in your history. You got to have one of those in the background, right? 
So, so let, yeah, let's get, yeah. let's get back to playing though, because, you know, I, I have so much more I want to get to, and I know we don't have a ton of time, but um, it, you come out and you're on a practice squad. So you don't know if you're going to be an NFL player yet. And, you know, I, I always wonder what's it like waking up going, I've got to work my butt off just to be on the practice squad, just to get noticed and maybe have a job. I don't even know what you were getting paid at the time to be on the practice squad, but you know, it, it's enough to get by You're young, single, don't need much. But what's the mindset when you're going through that period of time in your life? Uh, well, I mean, I, I obviously not had it easy up until then. So it, I wasn't expecting it to be easy once I got to that point. Started in Cleveland, got cut after the third preseason game, went back to school, worked out for the Texans, wasn't signed. Then New Orleans calls out of nowhere. I hadn't heard from any scouts or coaches from New Orleans leading up to the draft. Um, and coincidentally, they were at the scrimmage the inner squad scrimmage that we had in Cleveland training camp that season in 2005. And um, for me, like, I feel like the, the practice squad was kind of perfect for my mentality. Show up to work every single day, every single day. I was just talking uh, to one of my buddies about this on Saturday. Every day for me was game day. I didn't care what was going on in the secondary. I didn't care if the guys were banged up. I didn't care if they wanted me to slow down. Like, I was showing up every single day with, with one thing in my mind is I'm going to kill them. Like that's, that's it. And it never changed from, from day one to through the end of that season into the next season. When I bounced up and down from the practice squad, it was like, okay, like they're going to make, I'm going to make sure that they see me every single day. And they're going to have to give me an opportunity at some point, because I'm going to show up on film every single day when the defense is watching film, when the staff is watching the film, when the scouts are watching the film, they're going to be like, who is this 16 dude? Why, like, why is 16 beating us every single day? Why is he making so many plays? Oh, man, that's an amazing play. Like, he's making plays that our guys that are playing aren't making. Um, and that was like, like I said, it was perfect because that was the mentality that I had, just work every single day. And if I handled my business, once the opportunity came, then I was going to make sure that I, you know, made the most of that opportunity. And fortunately for me, that kind of came in 2007. And from there, there was, you know, basically no looking back. So, so what were your parents telling you to do throughout this period of time? Here, here's what's clear, Lance. Uh, your parents aren't Jewish. I know that uh, because <laughs> I come from a Jewish family. And if I was in your situation, my mom would be like, you know, you may want to work at Bloomingdale's because the football right. thing's not working out for you. You know, you got that whole thing. What, what were your parents telling you at that time? Were they encouraging you to stay with it? Or were they worried about your future and saying you may have to find something else? No, I don't think they were worried about it at all. Um, at this time, my parents were were separated, and and um, my dad is just like a fan, like, hey, you know, you're, he's in the NFL, and then my mom was just always asking me if I was okay. You know, like there wasn't necessarily any worry um, that that I was going to be in a you know a bad situation or not be able to make it, um, because even then, even on the practice squad, I was making way more money than they were making. I think I don't remember exactly what we were making back then, maybe. I think my first first year on practice squad in 05, I want to say it was like 67,000 or somewhere around there. Um, and then, you know, a little bit more the next year, 72,000 or something like that. Which, which is, by the way, which by the way, in the, in the real world is a lot of money. In the football yeah. world, it's, we go $67,000. I mean, that's one right. out for Lance Moore, but in the real world, <laughs> that's, <laughs> it's real money, Lance. You know what I mean? Like to your parents, yeah, that's no, real money. Is. It is, and, and, that, and I think that was a big part of them not being worried about me because they're yeah. like, well, he's making he's making more money than both of us put together. So he's going to be OK, you know, like and, and they knew that I was I was 
smart enough to make the right decisions. They knew that I was classically a saver by nature, so they didn't have to worry about me blowing my checks every week because there were guys that did that. And I just, I couldn't believe it, whether it be gambling or shopping or whatever other addictions that that guys had. Um, So no, there wasn't, there really wasn't any other time or, or anything that was going on other than encouragement and just making sure that I was okay. So when did you get your first guaranteed contract? What year was that? Um, I, I mean, I guess you could say the first guaranteed contract was when I got tendered, um, after the 08 season. So the 08 season was, uh, I had, uh, 79 catches, 900 something yards and 10 touchdowns. And I was only active for three games, my rookie year. So I went into restricted free agency as opposed to unrestricted, which could be in a whole different situation (laughs) nowadays, if, if that was, if that was the case, but. Um, so that that next year, I was due to make like 1.5 million or something, which to me was way more money than I ever made before, and um, was cool. But still, on a one-year deal, didn't allow me to feel like I had quite made it before. And I almost feel like it's a blessing in disguise because what happened after that? Like the CBA was torn up after that season, and you had to have five uh, accrued years to become an unrestricted free agent. So I went right back to restricted free agency. So my tender went up. I think I made 1.75 or something like that the next year, um, which is more money. But then again, it was another one year deal. And like, right. okay, I still, I still haven't made it. I got to keep proving myself. I got to show up every day. I've got to make sure that I'm making the plays, um, all of the plays that I made before. And then even some more, because they're going to try to get younger and they're going to try to get cheaper on me. So, um, after that season, so I would say going into the 2011 season was the first time that I signed a long-term deal, obviously, because I signed a five-year deal. Um, But that was the first time that I had like a contract with guarantees and X amount of years. Um, So that was the first time that I really felt like I made it, but I still had a little chip on my shoulder because I felt like I was worth more than what I ended up getting. (laughs) So who does that? You know, if, if anybody watched the, the Michael Jordan or the, the last dance Chicago Bulls thing, and like I took it personally, like when he always kept saying that, like that, that is really how I felt. Like I, I took it personally because I was like, dang, this is all I'm getting. Like this is all I'm worth, even though that was the best that I could have gotten. You know, I mean, that was that was the reality of it. And, and it put me right back in the lab. I mean, get back to work, like make sure that you not only show them that you're worth the money that they're paying you, but you're worth a lot more. And, and potentially that could lead to more money down the line. And um, as we all know, NFL contracts, specifically five-year deals, don't always get played out. Um, and after three years and an uh, injury season in that third year, I was, I was cut again. I was gone from the same. But, um, you know, that, that gave me another chip on my shoulder. Okay, I'm going to prove to the Saints that, you know, I'm still got, you know, plenty of years left and I can still play and I can still make the plays. Um, so I found a way with, you know, kind of self-motivation and, and allowing what happens around me to, to make me want to work more. Um, and I feel like it worked pretty well for me. How much does it suck to get cut? To be told you're not wanted anymore. Yeah. I mean, it, it sucks obviously because you, you are in a place that, that for most of us, we dreamed of being. Um, and at, especially the first time I got cut, when I got cut by the Browns, the first of five, uh, when I got cut by the Browns, it was, it was not just humbling, but it was like, damn, I don't know if I'm going to have another opportunity. Um, but after, you know, a couple of years and getting cut a couple of times, it was like, okay, well, 
hopefully when another opportunity comes, I'll be ready for that one. I'll make the most of it. But it wasn't quite the same shock as that first time. And, and you know, because I hadn't done anything up until then, at least, you know, the, the next year when I got cut by the Saints, like they got a chance to see me, you know, do stuff in practice um, during the regular season. They got a chance to uh, bring me up to the active roster, even though I never played in any games. Um, so I at least knew that somebody, you know, saw the potential in me. Um, but you know, when you're, when you're making good money on a, on a bigger contract and you get cut, it sucks. Yeah. You, you know, not, not to say that I had plans for all of the money, but, right, but um, you know, that that's the goal, right? Long-term deal guaranteed money. Like that's, that's usually what you want to get out of the thing. And once it's cut short, usually I would probably say 90% of the time, maybe even more when you get cut from a big deal, whatever you were due to make, you're usually not going to ever make that again. I mean, that's right. just the reality of it. Aging players are usually the ones that get cut or cap casualty guys. And if one team doesn't feel like you're worth that much money, why would another team? Um, you know, there are obviously guys that don't fit into that mold, right? That are going to make top dollar forever. Um, but, you know, I was one of those guys that wasn't like that. So um, it definitely hurts a little bit to, to get the call or to, you know, go into the, the coach's office and get that same old spiel said to you. But it's not you know, you. It's, a, it's a it's it's yeah it's a, it's a part of the business and I, I get that but but it's a it's a pretty pretty sucky part of the business. So specific 2009, you're playing under a one year deal, right? You hadn't gotten the big deal yet. 2009 uh, and 2010. Right, but 2009 was the year that the Saints went to the Super Bowl. Yep. So I, I want to talk about two things. Um, one is I believe you guys were 13 and 0 that year, were you not? And then yep. lost like two Three of the straight. last three of the last three games going into the postseason, right? Yep. And so, so did you guys think that you were going to be okay after losing three in a row to go into the postseason? Yeah, I think we did. I don't think the media did because no team had ever won the Super Bowl after losing their last three regular season games up until then. Right. Um, and we just we knew that we were the best team, and that wasn't changed by us losing those last three games. Like there might have been like, okay, we we we're not uh, riding that winning streak into the into the playoffs, but. We knew after that last game, I think we played the Panthers in Carolina. Um, we had a bye week because we were the number one seed, so we could get fresh. We can get guys back. We can kind of wash away the sins of those three losses and kind of get moving forward. Um, and, you know, that's what we did. Uh, we weren't worried about what anybody else said about, you know, it's never been done before and um, until now. I mean, until that point, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we weren't too worried about, it, it sucks to lose those games, right? And it sucks to have to hear about you guys are are not playing well going into the playoffs. You lost three straight. No team has ever done it before. But for us, the whole season, we felt like we were the best team, and it didn't change at that point. All right, let, let's talk about one specific play. Are you a special teamer at this point in your career? I don't even know. Were you playing on special teams? Uh, in in, o, in 09, I was only doing spot duty on punt and kickoff return. I, I wasn't I wasn't playing special, special okay. teams at that, at that so, time. So we all know how the second – you guys are trailing at the half against the yep. Indianapolis Colts and Peyton Manning, and the second half starts with an onside kick. Yep. I want to know what information you had as the second half got underway. Did you have any idea what you guys were going to be doing? If you did, when you learned about it, and if you did, the anticipation of the play. Well, yeah, I mean that the ambush was the play call, and we had been working on that the entire season, like the whole season, and we never called it. We never called it. We never called it. We never called it. But we worked on it every week, and then we get to um, the week before Super Bowl week, right? So there's two weeks in between. 
And he's like, we're going to keep working this ambush. We're going to keep working this ambush. And then we're leading up the, the week of the game. He's like, I'm going to call this ambush. I'm going to call it. And everybody's kind of like, yeah, all right. Like you've been saying that the whole year, you know, okay, we'll be ready. But yeah, we'll believe when we hear it. Um, and I just, I feel like he, he felt like we needed a spark, right? We were, we were, weren't doing too much offensively. Our defense had to contest with Peyton Manning. And if we could steal a possession and we, you know, that'd be great for us. Um, you know, he comes in at halftime. He does his normal spiel, offense, defense breaks up. And right before he walks out and we walk out, he's like, oh yeah, ambush, get ready. And then everybody's like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, okay, here we go. Like, and so at that, at that point, the whole team knows. So we've got to go out and be the best actors we can be, you know, not obviously giving anything away or not a bunch of guys standing <laughs> right there, 10 yards away from the ball to try to see who recovers it. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just the type of coach that he is and, and has a real good sense of, what's going on internally with, with the players and, and how to get guys going. And he's a gambler. I mean, that, that was a, a hell of a gamble. I mean, you give Peyton Manning a short field right there with a lead in the Super Bowl. I mean, it, it doesn't set up well for us if they recover that. So um, credit to him for doing it and credit to the, to the guys for executing it as well as they did. Yeah, but are you sitting on the sideline just waiting for the, you know, them to blow the whistle to start just to see what happens? I'd be sitting there like yeah. coming out of my skin like, oh, <laughs> I got to see. <laughs> And well, yeah, not not to not to say that I felt like that was like where we would win or lose the game per se, but right, pretty pretty significant, you know, when when you see how the rest of the game goes in that game. I mean, it like yeah, I was just I was on the edge of my seat, like come on, hurry up, hurry up, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it before they figure it out, you know, type of thing. Um, and yeah, just one of those plays that will kind of live on forever. So so obviously, Drew Brees gets a Super Bowl championship. And I think, you know, for many, it's disappointing that it was the only Super Bowl championship, considering that it was over a decade ago in the career that he put together. And of course, he's announced his retirement. But I think there's this assumption, Lance, that, you know, people will ask me, you know, about somebody, oh, they must have been really good friends. And I say, I, I don't get the sense that just because you're on the same team, you develop great friendships. You, you develop them while you're with the team. But there's a difference between being a friend and a teammate. You played with Drew Brees. Did you become friends with him? Yes. You did? Yeah, I did. And, well, I mean, coincidentally, we both live in San Diego. So we see each other from time to time. We still hang out. He has guys over at the field. I'll go check them out at the field. But we're not, we're not besties. You, you know, like we're not going and having Sunday brunches together or anything like that. But I would say we were together eight years. So um, that's a lot of time to spend with somebody and – um, I don't think all of the receivers that play with Drew have the same relationship that I have with him, but um, I was fortunate enough to develop that type of relationship with him. And like I told you on air a couple of weeks ago, you know, I'm trying to recruit him to my rec basketball team. We're working on the contract details now. And um, but no, just a, just an awesome guy to play with um, even better person than he was a player and a pretty good basketball player, too. Yeah. And last thing, uh, before we finish up, I, I was saying earlier that you and I worked together um, in the past. Uh, you actually were the first person to ever uh, tell me about Turo, which I've now used a number of times. When you went rented a car that was too small to fit more than two, and we had a stuff up <laughs> producer in the back seat. As you, First of all, you drove us to the airport. That in itself, okay, that should tell you how humble you are, that you offered to drive us to the airport, uh, which of you course. did in Turo. But but when we went back, it was like Moses parting the Red Sea. It was like, <laughs> wait, Lance Moore's on campus. I mean, everybody wants to talk. Everybody wants to chat. It, it made me wonder why you're in San Diego, as you said, why you wouldn't embrace New Orleans because of 
the way you were accepted there and appreciated there. Well, why did you leave New Orleans? And how does it make you feel to go back to an environment like that? Well, it always feels good to go back, right? I mean, it's I was I spent nine years with that organization, and it's really like a second home for me. And, and if there is any other place in this country that I could envision myself living, it's there. Um, but my wife is a California girl, um, born and raised, never lived anywhere other than California, moved to San Diego from Northern California like 10 years ago. Um, so, you know, her happiness is mine. If she's happy here, then I'm happy here. And it's it's a pretty good place to be, you know, so... Um, you know, I don't get the same uh, reaction from people <laughs> when I go places here because I never played for the Chargers or or any of the California teams. But um, it just makes it even better when I go back to New Orleans and you get that feeling of love and family. I mean, I, that's to me, that's what it feels like. It's not it, people don't make me feel like I'm some big deal or I'm better than them or I'm some superhero. They make me feel like I'm a part of their family. And that to me is what's most awesome about the, not just New Orleans, but the the whole organization, the whole region, really. I mean, because everybody's Saints fans down there, um, and it is. It is like that's what separates that organization in that area from any other that I've ever been in. And you know, we're talking Cleveland Browns who have great fans, the Pittsburgh yep. Steelers who have fans literally all over the world, and even the Lions who don't have a great history of winning but have awesome fans. Um, the feeling is just different in New Orleans, and. That's something that I will always cherish and really makes me miss it when I'm gone. All right. Did, did, did you embrace the food while you were there? Because, you know, you oh know we, we've talked. I, I'm a Tulane alum. You and I yep. went to the Acme Oyster Bar on the way to the airport, but not the real Acme Oyster Bar, which is downtown right. in the French Quarter, kind of the knockoff Acme Oyster Bar. But be, be, <laughs> get, what was your best sandwich? Give me your best sandwich in New Orleans. Oh, man. Hot, hot sausage po' boy is always my go-to. That, Where that is that? Is just I get that at Acme. I mean, you can get it at a bunch of different places. Oh, but oh. Acme, Mac, Acme was the first time that I had that po' boy. And funny, we talked about oysters. Uh, my anniversary was last week, and Drago's Oysters actually does charbroiled oyster kits. So <laughs> I ordered one, had it sent to my house, did the charbroiled oysters on the grill for my wife, and like she's like a huge, huge charbroiled oyster fan. So that was I was a, I was a good guy that day. Um, but yeah, man, I like the food is like. I'm like, you're making me miss it, right? I'm like salivate. I'm hungry because the food is just so good. I mean, it's just the, the the culture, the people, the food, the music. I mean, it's the vibe is is amazing. And may, maybe someday I'll I'll buy a place there so I can spend more time there. That that I think that would be a good goal to have. I'm fortunate. My son is a sophomore at Tulane, which requires me hey. to visit on a regular basis. And yep. you know, <laughs> you, you know when when you have an affinity for a certain place you have your go-to places. So you go down and yep. I, I think I tried to take you to Krabby Jack's when I was down there. And of course they were closed. Yes. Yep. Which is why we had to move on. But, but you know, th there's something special about being able to share with your son. This is, and nothing changes in New Orleans. You know that it's like, no. it, it, everything's been there for like a thousand years. So when I take him to <laughs> yep. the po' boy shop that I got po' boys at, it's like, now it's his po' boy shop where you take him to yep. the place where you got red beans and rice. Now it's his, his red beans and rice play. There's something yep. great about that. Do you go back no, a lot? Is. Do you go back a I, lot or no? Um, well, before COVID, I would try to go back two to three times a year. Once um, during the season with with my family for a game, I try to do that every year just because I, you know, my, my kids weren't alive when I was playing. Well, my yeah. oldest was, but not not in New Orleans. So I want them to kind of have a little piece of that because it, it means so much to me, you know, and I want to be able to share that with them. Um, and then the other two times, usually once for work and then once maybe 
uh, to meet some guys or, or the, um, I always have to go to new Orleans each year for the, uh, Saints Ahoy, uh, fan charity cruise that we do. We, we take off from new Orleans and then go to Cozumel. Um, so that's usually like the third time that I go, but, um, I, I would like to go back more, man. I like, I, I love the place and I always miss it. I mean, it just, it, it holds such a special place in my heart. And, and, and I mean, you could speak firsthand of this. There is no other place that's like it. No, no, no not even close. And, I, and people are always like, well, what do you mean when you say that? And I'm like, well, it, it's probably not the best like party place, even though you can have a great time partying. Um, it probably might not be the best food for everybody, even though I feel like it's the best food. Um, and the weather, like some people can't handle humidity. Like my wife is like, can we go when it's not the middle of the summertime? Cause it's going to be so humid. <laughs> I love it. Like I love everything about it. And there's just, there's just no other place that makes me feel the way that new Orleans makes me feel. You know, people, people will get offended by this, but I try to explain when I'm asked, Madison's a great college town and Arbor's a great college town, but they're not unique. They, they're, they have a, you know, they have some feel, but they're college towns. There's something unique right. about New Orleans, a culture that is not shared by any other city in this country. Nope. And, and it will never be duplicated. So you're right. It's special. Uh, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer. First of all, do you still practice karate? <laughs> no, but no. I, have talked to, I have talked to my wife about doing teaching karate to my kids soon. Um, just cause you know, I, I feel like it'd be good for them to have discipline and, and teach them some of the things that I learned, but no, I, it's been since I was 13 years old, since I've done anything related to karate. Uh, now, Mr. Miyagi used to teach that it's about defense, not offense. Yep. You're supposed to use it for defense. Was that what Correct. your dad's message was? Absolutely. Do everything you can to not have to fight. And then if you do have to defend yourself, do it well. <laughs> <laughs> and, and have you ever found yourself in a scuffle and you go back to those instincts of karate like you, you know no because i felt like if i if i started kicking people i would really have to hurt them <laughs> so any kind of mini little scuffle just a couple punches and then i'm out of there but yeah the the, the karate would be somebody would be end up really really injured and would be really really bad for me <laughs> All right. I'll let you go. But but Lance Moore is happy right now, right? You're you're just content. Love, love life. Uh, love my family. Love the, the new phase um, and excited about the future. So, yeah, as, as long as I can get back on the basketball court here soon in California, because we're still pretty shut down, uh, I'll be I'll be perfect. And you think you, you think you'll get Breeze out there? Yep, I think so. You know, I, I think I'll be able to handle his contract demands. You know, he's he stayed relatively healthy in his career. Um, but he's an old man now, so don't, yep. you know, be careful with him on the basketball court. You don't want, no, nobody wants that torn ACL in their forties or their fifties. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, that's, that would be a disaster, but <laughs> I, I'll do my, I'll do my best to take care of him and, you know, we'll, we'll we won't take it too serious. Now. Yeah. Lance, <laughs> it was great catching up. Really appreciate you spending some time with me. No problem. Thanks for having me. So there you have it, Lance Moore. Eight years in New Orleans, a member of a Super Bowl team, and then, of course, played in both Pittsburgh and Detroit to finish up a 10-year career. But like I said before we started, just a great story, being a roommate of Bruce Gradkowski's, both of them making it to the National Football League. And again, when you come out of a school like Toledo, do you expect 10 years? Probably not. And yet, you get the sense from him that he knew it could happen all along. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you enjoyed the conversation and you want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcast. Next week, 
We'll be speaking with Mark Ellis, a little departure from what we've done the last couple of weeks. Mark Ellis is a movie reviewer and a host of his own podcast from Rotten Tomatoes. And we're going to talk some baseball movies with him. Because if you're a sports fan and this time of year rolls around and sports movies start coming out, you know everybody has the great debate about baseball movies. Mark Ellis from Rotten Tomatoes is going to join us next week. Don't forget, you can also find us on the SiriusXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcasts. Going Long, part of the SiriusXM podcast network. The executive producer is Andrew Emmer. Sound design by Robert Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. And of course, a special thanks to SiriusXM's senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen. I'm Bruce Murray. Hopefully we'll talk to you next Thursday. Serious XM Podcasts.